0: Right now I'd invite you to open up your Bible. If you have a Bible to Ephesians chapter 5, we'll continue our study there. And if you don't have a Bible, you would like one, raise your hand. We've got some coming down the aisle here. Also, if you have your notes from the bulletin, you can follow along there. And we're going to look at God's Word together before we go into communion. As we continue in our study in the book of Ephesians... And I wanted to give a thanks to Paul Beckman, who preached the Word last week, and I I still haven't heard it yet, but I'm going to soon, as soon as we get it finalized in a copy. But I've heard a lot of positive feedback, Paul, that you brought the Word of God to the people. So thank you very much for doing that. Praise the Lord. Um, And we had a wonderful time away on vacation tent, camping with the family and away from computer and the cell phone and the email. Boy, that was refreshing. And have an intensive family time together. But we thank God that we were able to, to be away and know that God's church would go on. Didn't have a warrior concern the entire time I was gone. Because it's God's church, God's people. Not my church. So but we are thankful to be back. And two weeks ago I left off with Ephesians five, eighteen, part two. Where we are looking at the Spirit-filled life, this exhortation from the Apostle Paul who is commanding Christians, telling the Christians there in the church at Ephesus and also through the Holy Spirit speaking to anybody that is a Christian today. This command applies to all of us in Ephesians 5.18 where we are exhorted, and I said it was a key transitional command and phrase in the entire book of Ephesians, this command... Or Paul said, do not get drunk with wine, but for that is dissipation, but rather be filled with the Spirit. Or be filled with the Holy Spirit. Or we said could literally be translated as, be controlled by the Holy Spirit of God. As a matter of fact, the only way we can fulfill all these mandates and imperatives and commands that are given to us in Ephesians is by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit that you have at the moment you came to know Christ. Without the indwelling Holy Spirit, it is impossible to fulfill, to God's satisfaction, all the commands that He expects of us. Hence, this all-important exhortation in all of our obedience to God be dependent upon His indwelling Holy Spirit. That's where we find our strength. In me is nothing good, said the Apostle Paul, but I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me and lives in me. That's the great truth of Christianity. So that's where we were picking up here and we're continuing this discussion on the command to be spirit-filled and then what does that mean to be spirit-filled? That needed to be clarified. And then today we're going to look specifically starting at verse 19, which actually goes 19, 20, and 21. Those are the results of what it looks like if you are spirit-filled in your life. Today I want to emphasize a part of verse 19. On your handout there it says Ephesians 5:19 through 20. And I call it the spirit-filled living. Two weeks ago it was the spirit-filled life. And that was just answering the question, what does it mean to be spirit-filled? Because there's question, there are differences of opinion and confusion even in the, the Christian church about what it means to be spirit-filled. So we tried to clarify that biblically, what it means to be spirit-filled. Now that we understand that, it's now live that out in your life. And if you are a spirit-filled Christian from day to day, there are going to be fruits that are evident in your life or manifestations of being spirit-filled. And that's what Paul's trying to tell us in these following verses, 19 through 21, are evidences of what it means to be a spirit-filled Christian. So every one of us, if we're believers, we can examine our life at any time, any given moment, and do a diagnostic check of our actions and our attitudes to see, are we being spirit-filled at this moment in time? Because every Christian, because of our remaining indwelling sin, we will battle sin and there will be times where we are not being obedient to the Holy Spirit. We're not living a life that is spirit-filled. We could be Sin-filled or controlled by the flesh at times. Uh, And if we are, then we have to ask for God's help. We have to repent of our sin and then ask Him to fill us with His Spirit so that we can be Spirit-filled. So we're going to look at verse 19, one of the evidences of what it means to be filled with the Spirit. First, just by way of review, what does it mean to be Spirit-filled? We said two weeks ago, just to clarify, that uh, being filled with the Spirit means controlled by the Spirit controlled. He is the dominating influence in your life at any given moment regarding what you're thinking, what you're talking about, and what you're doing. And that's just moment to moment, decision by decision in the Christian life. So at any given moment, a Christian may not be filled with the Spirit, or they might be. You're either controlled by your own flesh and your own lust, or you're controlled by God's Holy Spirit and His Word. So that's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. It means to be controlled by God's Spirit, primarily the the Spirit who lives in you. Uh, A synonym for that is being filled with the Spirit is just being an obedient Christian at any given moment. Being obedient. Uh, The language that Paul uses in Galatians 5 for the exact same concept is walking in the Spirit. It's a present tense aspiration that we have as Christians that we're always aspiring towards. Walking in step with the Spirit. Being obedient to Him. That's what being filled with the Spirit is. Um, being filled with the Spirit also means that you are empowered by the truth of God's Word that you take in on a regular basis by listening to it and by reading it and by studying it and most importantly then by applying it in your life and submitting to the Word of God. If you have a submissive attitude to the truth of the Word of God, then you probably are a Spirit-filled Christian in that moment of time. Submitting to the truth of the Word of God is what it means to be Spirit-filled. The reason I say that is because the parallel passage in Colossians 3.16 that very closely mirrors Ephesians chapter 5, much of the terminology is identical, but instead of the command there, in a, I'll just read it to you, Colossians 3. The command there from Paul is not be controlled with the Spirit or be Spirit-filled. His command is this, let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. But he means the same thing. To be Spirit-filled is to let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. Or literally, let the Word of Christ be at home in your heart. How do you do that? By reading it. And it's present tense on an ongoing, regular basis. If you want to be a healthy Christian, an obedient Christian, a Spirit-filled Christian, you need a regular intake of the Word of God. You cannot go weeks. Or you can't go days and weeks and months without taking in the Word of God. If you do, you will get dried up. You don't have anything to feed your soul. So an absolute key to fulfill the command of being spirit-filled is taking in the Word of God, reading it, listening to Bible tapes, listening to good Bible teachers on the radio, emphasizing good, because there are some bad ones. There are deceivers out there, the Bible says that, on television and radio. Taking in the Word of God, reading good Christian books, uh, memorizing the Word of God. Going to church and listening to sermons, going to Sunday school and listening to the Word of God, interacting with the Word of God, teaching the Word of God to others. It needs to be a regular, ongoing thing for the Christian life. That is a prerequisite to being spirit-filled. But it all hinges around the truth of God's Word, having it in your heart, and being submissive to its truth in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's being spirit-filled. And finally, what does it mean to be spirit-filled? Just by way of reminder, it does not mean speaking in tongues. Some of you might be wondering, why in the world is he saying that? What does that have to do with being spirit-filled? Well, the answer is, it has nothing to do with being spirit-filled. But the reason I need to remind us that being filled with the Spirit is not synonymous with speaking in tongues is because the view that being spirit-filled is synonymous with speaking in tongues is all pervasive in American culture and American Christianity. Many, 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 many churches believe that's what it is. To say that you're a spirit-filled Christian means that you speak in tongues. You have that gift. That is not what Paul's talking about. That isn't what it means. Speaking in tongues was a legitimate gift given by God. The Apostle Paul spoke in tongues, but he never put it in proximity to the meaning of what it means to be Spirit-filled. Those are two totally different realities. So if that is all you think when I say be filled with the Spirit, then somehow you need to change your paradigm of thinking and get that out of the equation and look to what Scripture actually has to say about what it means to be Spirit-filled. It means obedient to the Holy Spirit, controlled by the Holy Spirit, taking in the Word of God and submitting it and applying it to your life on a regular basis, prayerfully. And as a result, you will be Spirit-filled. And as a result of that, you will have fruits of the Spirit manifest in your life through your actions, through your attitudes, and through your words. And that's how we can examine whether we are filled, uh, filled with the Spirit or not. The Apostle Paul said himself in Corinthians, he said, examine yourself. Paul told Christians to do that in Corinthians. Examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. We need to do self-examination daily. Asking God to search our hearts. David did that in the Psalms, didn't he? God, search my heart and see if there's any wayward way in me or even if there's sins I don't even know about that I'm ignorant of in my own life. We need to do ongoing, regular inventory in our own life to see if we're being obedient, to see if we are spirit-filled. One of the ways that we can do that objectively is is to gauge our attitudes, our actions, and our words with fruits in the Bible. Godly fruits that are delineated in the Bible or manifestations of spiritual living in the Bible. And some of these manifestations of true, godly, spirit-filled living are mentioned in 19, 20, and 21. So let's go ahead and look at at those. Uh, The byproduct, the results, the fruits of being spirit-filled, 19 through 21. And actually there's four of them. And they're given by Paul uses five different participles to tell us four predominant fruits that it will be in the life of a Christian who is being spirit filled at any given moment of time. And the emphasis here in 19 through 21 on these manifestations of true spiritual living, the emphasis is on attitudes. It's not really on externals, it's on the heart. God looks on the heart, doesn't he? We look at external, says the book of Samuel. God looks on the heart. So that's Paul's emphasis here. If you want to be a spirit-filled Christian, if you are, then it's going to be manifest in your heart. It's going to be manifest by attitudes. And attitudes manifest themselves through words and actions, don't they? So he's dealing with attitudes of the heart. And it's attitudes of the heart towards different people. That will indicate whether you are spirit-filled in your living or not. So let me read 18 through 21, because it's a unit and goes together. Do not get drunk or do not be controlled with wine or alcohol, for that is dissipation, but rather be filled or be controlled with the Holy Spirit. Then he goes on, if you are, then here's the results. You will be speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. You'll always be giving thanks for all things, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Those are the manifestations or fruits of spirit-filled living. And this morning, I just want to look at the first one. And that's, go ahead and look at your handout there. I I came up with three points, verses 19 and 20, three manifestations of being spirit-filled. And I want to look at the first one this morning, and probably next week we'll pick up points two and three. Uh, What does it mean to be spirit-filled? Well, according to the Bible, if we are spirit-filled with a regular intake of the Word of God, understanding it, applying it to our lives and submitting to it, and being dependent and yielding to the Holy Spirit who lives in us, prayerfully, the number one, our life will be characterized by encouraging others with uplifting edification. That's point number one. We will regularly, because it's present tense in verse 19, that means it's a regular... Pattern and habit of, of behavior. You will be speak. You will be encouraging others with uplifting edification. Edification means to build up somebody else. Instead of cut them down, you build them up. You encourage them. And notice encouraging others. Um, actually, the main thing I wanted to emphasize in verses nineteen and twenty, just to give you the big picture. If you are spirit filled then it primarily reflects an attitude you have towards others. Well, who are those others? Well, you're going to have a right attitude towards other people. That's point number one. Because you will be encouraging others, edifying others, speaking to one another in uplifting ways. Then you'll have a specific godly attitude towards God Himself. That's verse 20 or actually the second part of verse 19, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, so you have the right attitude towards the Lord. You know, there are some people who are mad at God, bitter at God, lack faith towards God, question God. If your spirit-filled, then your attitude will not be one of questioning God, but rather singing, making melody with your heart to the Lord. You have a proper attitude towards God. So you have a proper attitude towards other believers by wanting to edify and encourage them in the way you communicate. You have the proper attitude towards the Lord, giving Him His due in terms of your attitude. And then verse 20 talks about your attitude towards yourself. If you're spirit-filled, you have the proper attitude towards yourself. Well, where's that? Verse 20. Always giving thanks for all things... In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to God, even the Father. That's really talking about yourself, isn't it? It's, t- it's talking about me. Whenever it says there's a command to give thanks, it's giving thanks to God, yes, but it's also giving the thanks to God about yourself. That means you've done some in- inventory. You've done some introspection. You've done a diagnostic evaluation of what is going on in your life. You look at your life. You look at your circumstances in life. You look at your lot in life, and you don't conclude as a Christian, oh, poor me, oh, woe is me how much you deserve and how much you don't have, because that's not a biblical mindset. Everything we have is a gift from God. Everything we have that is a blessing is undeserved, by the way, from a biblical point of view. Everything we do have is by God's grace. That is a biblical attitude. That's why in the Bible, over and over again, it says, for the believer, we are obligated and commanded to always be thankful to God. And notice in verse 20, it says, in all things in any circumstances, no matter what is going on in your life. It doesn't mean be thankful for the bad things in your life. It means be thankful to God in the midst of your life, no matter what is going on. Because God always deserves thanks if you are a believer. Because no matter what happens in your life, whether uh, there's a tragedy, a death, a disease, or whatever it is, or a physical uh, affliction, as a Christian, you always have many things to be thankful to God for, don't you? I do. First is just salvation and forgiveness of sin. So that's the big picture there. Paul's getting at attitudes, attitudes about how we think of other believers, God himself, and ourselves. We need to be thankful people. But let's go ahead and really zero in on uh, the beginning of verse 19, where we are commanded as Christians, if we want to be spirit-filled, to be encouraging others on a regular basis with uplifting edification, building them up. What does Paul specifically mean? Well, look at the details verse 19. We need to regularly be speaking to one another... In psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That's how we are to encourage other believers. And that's what it's talking about. When it says, verse 19, one another, it's talking about your fellow saints. It's talking about other believers. And it's talking about other believers in your midst. And the Apostle Paul meant that it was the local church there in Ephesus. Your spiritual family. That's where you're supposed to work this out. One another in a reciprocal, mutual way. As the body of Christ, we are interdependent upon one another. That's the implication there of one another. So we need to be edifying one another. Other believers, helping them grow in the faith. Stimulating one another to love and good deeds so we will grow. And we need people stimulating and encouraging us in positive ways. That's the emphasis here. Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Well, how do we do that? Well, just some key words I want to emphasize there. He says speaking... That's the participle there. That's one of the main things that goes with the command of what it means to be Spirit-filled. If you are Spirit-filled, you will be speaking. It means clear communication, purposeful communication, deliberate communication to other fellow saints who are in close proximity to you in the local body of Christ with deliberate communication with a specific purpose of edifying them, encouraging them, helping them grow in the Lord. Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Well, how do we do that? Well, the specific means of doing that that Paul emphasizes here is through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That's kind of interesting. If we were to take a survey and ask one another, how can we teach each other and help each other grow? What would be some effective means of doing that in a regular way? I don't know if we would say, well, through songs. I don't know if that would be in the top five answers. You know, through Bible study, through lectures, through preaching, through you know one-on-one conversation. I don't know if singing to each other and speaking songs to one another would make the top five in our frame of mind, but it's uh, prominent here from God's point of view and also Paul's point of view. This needs to be a regular part of Christian fellowship, encouraging one another, edifying one another through songs, different kinds of songs, different kinds of music. And he's very specific here with what kinds of music or songs he has in mind, and I want to look at those. So we're speaking to one another on a regular basis with music, with songs, with what he calls psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And like I said, this might be foreign to some of you. For some of you, music might not even be a big deal and you don't really think about it much, or that it doesn't have a big place in the church or your Christian life. But it does for Paul in this passage. Uh, It did for Martin Luther, who was a pastor and a theologian, and he himself wrote songs that were very encouraging. And as a matter of fact, we sing some of his songs. A mighty fortress is our God that has lasted hundreds of years. Very encouraging. And he wrote that to encourage other believers in light of this passage, to help them in their walk with the Lord. But I want to look at some of the details here of uh, what Paul means by psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Those three terms, they're very specific. They do overlap a little bit in meaning to a degree, but at the same time they have very specific nuances with themselves that distinguish them uh, from one another. For example, the word psalm there, uh, the times that it's used, it's used eight, that word is used 80 times in the Old Testament, in the Greek Old Testament, and the word psalms is used seven times in the New Testament, and it always is re- in reference to the Old Testament psalms, 150 psalms from the Old Testament. And that was kind of the songbook for the Jews. Their psalter, their hymnal, if you will, was the 150 songs after they were all composed, uh, that they sang or that they read. Paul Beckman read Psalm 96 today to us, to edify us, to remind us of God's truth from that perspective. Uh, Notice it said, speaking to one another in psalms. So you can sing psalms and you can also speak them to one another to encourage us. I was encouraged as Paul was reading that psalm, as just a few phrases jumped out at me and hit me and reminded me of great spiritual truth that I needed to hear. So we need to be reading the Psalms. So the Psalms refers to the Old Testament Psalter, 150 Psalms. And by the way, those were spoken, those were memorized, those were taught, and they were also sung. Particularly the Psalms in the middle of the book, the great Hallel, they sang those songs during different feasts, and probably during Jesus' last meal, the Last Supper, him and the disciples sang some Psalms together to encourage one another and also in worship of God the Father. So that's Psalms. Then hymns... It's a different word. It's only used 16 times in the Old Testament, Greek Old Testament. It's used four times in the New Testament. And the emphasis on that word was uh, the poetic element of the song, the artistry of the song. But also carried meaning, it it was a praise song sung to a deity or to God in praise. So the emphasis on him is A song being sung of praise in a poetic way, a poetic expression, an intimate personal expression to a deity, to God. And that's what songs are. They are, or hymns are. They are artistic. They are poetic. Poetry, by definition, encompasses something that is very personal and intimate, doesn't it? When people want to really communicate their feelings and their emotions in deep, expressive ways, what do they do? They write a poem. That's why guys wrote poems to their girlfriends, right? Poetry, a very emotional kind of language, and that's the venue, and that's uh, what it means regarding him even in the Bible. But it's praise on an emotional level. It's still legitimate. Just because it's emotional doesn't mean it's not legitimate. It's emotional and intimate because God is a personal God. We need to be personal with God. Not just have canned prayers and canned songs we repeat over and over and over and over and over. Personal communication with God through prayers and through songs and through new songs. So that's a hymn. Oh, by the way, the word psalm in Old Testament and here, it literally means to pluck or to strum as in a guitar. And so many of these psalms in the Old Testament were sung to a plucking instrument, to a guitar of sorts, to a lyre or whatever they call it, a harp kind of thing, like Evers was doing here. He was plucking an instrument. To the music. Plucking. Way to pluck, Evers. Or strumming. Even Chin on our piano was plucking, or it was strumming. Hitting the strings in the piano. That's what it means. That's what a psalm is. And by the way, just the origin of the word, the emphasis in psalm is creating music through the instrument. That's the emphasis. Because like I said, each of these words has a different nuance. Because in psalm, to pluck, the plucking instrument, that's totally different than the word there in verse 19 where it says spiritual songs. The word for song... That means singing. That's music through the human voice. By the way, that's the greatest instrument ever created, is the human voice. Because it is the most versatile, it is the only instrument that God made. But the word song, the way it's used in the Old Testament and the New Testament, it refers to singing with or without instrumentation. The word psalm refers to music in the Old Testament by instrumentation with or without singing. It's a beautiful compliment. So the emphasis in psalms is on the Instrumentation. Uh, the emphasis in hymn is the artistry of that expression in praise to God and the emphasis in song is the human element of the singing the beautiful human voice the greatest instrument ever made and all three of those are to be used in conjunction in the worship of our God together in beautiful harmony it's a great truth so we need to consider music as a gift from God a gift that He's given us to worship Him. And so what a a joy it is to sing with the saints. There's something about gathering with other saints and singing together uh, that is fulfilling and that brings you to another level of worship and expression towards God. I know it is for me, number one, because I have a lousy voice. And so when I'm with other saints who sing well, they drown me out and it sounds good. And that helps me and facilitates me and encourages me in my worship to God through song. And corporate singing, corporate worship with the saints has always been a part of God's plan all throughout history. Even in uh, when God first created uh, the nation of Israel and as soon as they crossed the Red Sea and God wiped out Pharaoh and killed his army, what was the first thing that they did? What was the first thing that Miriam did, the sister of Moses? She got a tambourine, she got all the ladies together, and they had a woman's choir, and they started singing and celebrating to God for being their Savior and saving them from wicked Pharaoh. And singing together, leading the saints in corporate worship. The, the, the angels have been corporately worshiping God in song ever since they've been created. And when we get to heaven as saints, we get to join the angelic choir according to the book of Revelation and sing with the angels to God. God loves that kind of worship, He appreciates that kind of worship, He wants that kind of worship. Corporate singing to Him. So it's always been a part of the saints and their expressive worship to God, so it always needs to be a part of the church and always has been a part of the church throughout history. Singing, music, always a very emotional, personal part of the element as the church gathers gathers together. And because music is so personal, can be, very intimate, very personal, you get into personal taste, personal preferences, Right? I like this style of music. I like this instrument. I like this song. Unfortunately, because of our sinful nature, we have twisted that. And instead of using song, as God has commanded us to do, to edify and encourage one another and unify the body of Christ, what have we done? We've turned it on its ear, especially in the last part of the 20th century. And we have made music and music preferences and music styles a point of division in the church. Sinfully so. Shameful. And it displeases God. You know, the the early church in the New Testament, it was not perfect. They had a lot of problems. Did you know that the Apostle Paul, who planted most of these churches, pastored most of these churches, he writes 13 letters to these churches. For the most part, he is not writing to these churches that he started to compliment them. He is writing to correct them and rebuke them. They have problems. That's why we have 13 books from the Apostle Paul. They were screwed up. They were disobedient. They were fighting with one another. They were sinful. These are corrective letters. So they had all kinds of problems. So the early church was fighting about all kinds of things. Fighting about doctrine. Fighting about behavior. Fighting about this. Fighting about that. And Paul is always trying to straighten them out. Would you guys quit fighting and knock it off and love each other and be forgiving and be humble and please be unified so you can grow and be a good testimony of the world? Would you stop it? Quit fighting? Quit being sinful? It's interesting that one of the things that the early church never fought about, as far as we can tell, is music. They never fought about music. They never th- thought about styles, preferences, the kind of instruments used, the kind of song sung. Are we going to see it projected on the wall? Or are we going to use the hymnal? Are we using it in an organ? Or are we using the guitar or the bass guitar, or an electric guitar, or drums? Why did they not argue about those things? Because they didn't have overhead projectors. Oh, that's one reason. But there are other reasons. They didn't argue about these things. Um, but. This issue over fighting about music and music style. I mean, I've been a part of churches that fought about music all the way from the top down. It's terrible. It's immature. It is sinful. It is divisive. It's a lousy testimony. Uh, It should not be tolerated at all in the local church. Because there's only one thing or one reason why God gave music to the church as a gift. It is to unify the church, to focus on God, to give Him praise and worship Him. That's it. So I pray that the future of GBF is one that always remembers that and has the right perspective and attitude about music in the church, the kind of songs we sing in the church, the kind of instruments we use in the church, and, and why we sing. To edify the saints, to glorify God. That's the, Paul's emphasis in verses 19 and 20. To edify the saints and to glorify and praise God. That is why you sing songs in the church. According to this passage. There is no other passage in the New Testament that talks about music or singing. Did you know that? This is it. This is all we have to go on. Contrast that with American Christianity, an entire huge segment of evangelical Christianity that says we need to sing certain songs and choose our music, not primarily, first and foremost, to glorify God and edify the saints, but to appease unbelievers. That, that's not in this passage. Unbelievers can't worship God. God gave music as a gift so that the saints would be prompted to worship God through song. An unbeliever can't do that. The best they can do is stand by and watch. They can watch the saints worship God and be awed and overwhelmed by that because of the mystery of it and they don't understand it. That is exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14. That if an unbeliever comes into your corporate midst your corporate assembly, and they see you, the saints, worshiping God corporately together in unity, it'll have an overwhelming impact on that unbeliever possibly being convicted of sin. They will fall on their face and commit their life to God. First Corinthians 14. Profound. So that should really help us. This, By the way, this passage is not primarily about music. But the truths that are stated here we can pull out and glean a lot of real simple, basic truths to come up with a philosophy, a biblical philosophy of how music is supposed to be used in the church and by the church. And it has a lot of practical implications, especially in light of what is going on in the world today in American Christianity. So, I mean, I've been through the worship wars in the last three, four churches I've been a part of. padded it up to here. I want nothing to do with it. As a matter of fact, I won't have anything to do with it. If you come to me to, to argue and fight about music and whether drums are from the devil or not, I'm not going to listen. I knew somebody who uh, actually believed that the organ was the ordained instrument from God. Literally, they believed that as a Christian. They're, they loved the Lord, they were sincere, but they sincerely believed that. The organ, the God ordained instrument from God. And I'm thinking, well, wait a minute, that was invented like hundreds of years after the church. How is that possible? And by the way, the word hymns here, singing hymns, that does not mean post-Reformation hymns. They did not exist when Paul wrote this. Martin Luther had not been born yet. Neither was John Calvin. Just a very important reminder because some saints believe that. That's what it's talking about. It's just talking about songs. So very important things to keep in mind to have the right perspective. And just one last point regarding these songs. Paul says, uh, encourage one another through music, speaking and singing, using psalms hymns and spiritual songs. You know what that tells me? That tells me that God likes variety in music. He didn't just say songs. He didn't say just hymns. That's variety. God likes variety. That's why we have all the colors. That's why no one, two human beings look the same, even twins. God likes variety. God likes variety even in music. So if you've got your pet peeve or your personal agenda or your personal preference about how you like your music, that's fine. As a Christian, you have the liberty to enjoy those preferences, but you can't voice that illegitimately on other believers in the church. Speaking of variety, in Psalms, which was the Psalter of the Old Testament saints, that they sang those songs, it mentions 19 different instruments. Did you know that? 19. And did you know the drums are in there? Uh-oh. I know that might offend some people. I think of... Uh, Psalm 150 closes with this. Oh, by the way, that psalm that Paul read, it started out, Sing to the Lord, sing to the Lord, sing to the Lord. God wants us singing to Him. That was written to a corporate assembly of believers. But in Psalm 150, listen to this. Praise the Lord. This is talking about worshiping Him, worshiping Him through music, worshiping Him through song. Uh, Praise God in His sanctuary. Where's the sanctuary? That's where people meet and God's presence dwells. That's right here. A New Testament application. Praise Him in His mighty expanse. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with trumpet sound. Okay, there's a different kind of instrument. A trump, Man, trumpets are loud. Do you know it's hard to play the trumpet softly and quietly? Because you've got to blow that puppy hard. <laughs> Praise Him with the trumpet. Praise Him with the harp and the lyre. Praise Him with timbrel and, uh-oh, dancing. Yikes. I'll skip that, that word. Praise Him with stringed instruments and pipe. is an electric guitar and a stringed instrument. Unfortunately, it is for some of you. Well, that's too loud. Next verse, verse 5. Praise Him with loud cymbals. Again, that's another instrument that's hard to play quietly. Crashing the cymbals. Can you do that quietly, please? Well, actually, Mom, I can't. Praise Him with loud cymbals. Praise Him with resounding cymbals. Man, really smash away. God's up in heaven, man. He wants it loud. Let everyone... Or let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. But we're going to stop there. Point number one. Encouraging others, that's other believers, in your local fellowship. Edifying them, every opportunity you have with speaking and with singing, with the gifts that God has given us. Specifically, God has given us music to encourage the saints. And that's why when I look up there and I read the words, man, there's some very encouraging truths in those songs that minister to my heart and hopefully they do the same to you and that was God's intention that we would be taught encouraged uplifted by songs that he has given to the church so with that let's go ahead and commit our time to the Lord in prayer before we transition into the Lord's Supper Father we do thank you for this day you have given us thank you for the reminders that come from your word God I think about this passage written 2,000 years ago and how applicable it is to today you talk about alcohol Being spirit-filled and music, three things that can be very controversial in the church among Christians, yet three things you want us to heed to preserve unity in the body. So help us to do that, God. Help us to be obedient to you and, God, have the right attitudes with respect to these things. God, give GBF a proper attitude about music in the local church that we might edify one another to spur them on to worship you with pure praise. So we thank you and we commit our time to you in Christ's name, amen.